Today, we begin a series on vision, a series where we're trying to look at what does God have for us as a church? What are some of the key steps that God is looking for us to make? Today, we're going to talk about faith, but I want to emphasize as we talk about this, as we talk about vision, part of our vision for a church is together, that we do this together as God created us to live in community God created us to grow in community. We're in this together. So to start off our togetherness, I want us to turn or look to 1 Corinthians 15.20, which is our scripture memory verse of the month, and I want to say this together. 1 Corinthians 15.20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15.20. We are a church founded on Christ. He is our foundation. He is the rock on which we stand. Today we're going to be exploring faith. I am convinced that our world knows almost nothing of what faith actually is. Our world has lots of views on faith. I talked about this a little bit last week, but many would say faith is something like unfounded optimism. A general hope, things will work out, right? That's not what faith is. That's not at all what faith is. Today we're going to explore real faith. Faith that changes your life. Faith that you can depend on. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 7. You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. And as we explore Luke chapter 7, what I want you to notice is real faith. I want you to notice that real faith is used. It's necessary when our backs are against the wall. Real faith involves steps of action. Real faith emphasizes Christ. And real faith will yield real answers. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. The Gospel of Luke I talked about a little bit earlier uh, this month, is written to a Gentile audience. Luke 1 talks about the sort of recipient of the book being Theophilus. That's a Greek term, a Greek name, that roughly means lover of God, friend of God. Luke's very careful when he writes, very detailed. Every detail matters in what Luke says. If you were to outline the book of Luke, you would see that in chapters 1 through 2, we see the birth of Jesus. Who is this man, Jesus? Where did he come from? We see his miraculous birth from the Holy Spirit. In verses, or sorry, chapters 3 through 4, we see Jesus' baptism and his testing. Is he genuinely sent from God? That's the question that you might ask there. In chapters 5 through 6, Jesus calls his disciples and begins performing miracles. And what we have seen by the time we get to Luke chapter 6 is that this is genuinely somebody special. Jesus is special. But there's a question that might be on your mind if you were a Greek reading this book. Is he special for me or just for the Jews? Is Jesus special to me as someone who's not a Jew? Or is this Jesus just somebody for the Jews? 
And that's what Luke does in chapter 7, is he shows this Jesus is special for everybody. He is special for us today. Let's look at Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far when the centurion sent friends to him. Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word and we study the faith of a man, not a Jew, but a centurion, I pray that you would open our hearts to see faith, that you would open our minds to understand faith, and that you would drive us to seek faith. In Jesus' name, amen. The first point that I want to make as I look at this comes out of verses 1 and 2. And what I want you to see in verses 1 and 2 is that real faith is needed when your back is against the wall. Real faith is needed when your back is against the wall. In verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to the setting, and we're told that there's a Roman centurion a centurion is a powerful person. You see, a Roman centurion would have been over a hundred individuals, 80 soldiers and 20 support staff. A Roman centurion was somebody of wealth, of prestige. It was sort of the highest rank somebody could hope to achieve without having been born into special circumstances. If you work your way up, it would take you about 20 years serving in the Roman military before you would achieve the level of centurion. That's somebody with a lot of power, with a lot of preparation. You see, what we see here in verses 1 and 2 is that no amount of preparation, no amount of power, no amount of authority can guarantee your well-being. This Roman centurion, despite his wealth, despite his power, despite his authority, had a big problem coming up that we see in this verse. Later on, we're actually going to see that the centurion is described as worthy by the elders of the Jews. What that means is that the Jews, remember, the Jews do not like the Romans. We might go so far as to say they hate the Romans. The Jews are going to say that this Roman is worthy 
He's not just an ordinary guy. You might describe him as a pretty good guy. So I would even add to this, no amount of preparation, power, authority, or just being a good guy can ensure our well-being. Bad things happen. We live in the fallen world. Benjamin Franklin, when, when they finished the Constitution, and everybody said, we finally have a durable document, not that it like, couldn't be ripped, a durable in the sense that it was going to last, Benjamin Franklin is famous for having said, the only sure thing in life are death and taxes. Sometimes life throws a curveball, and you're going to need real faith. Very little in this world is a sure thing. Very little is a sure thing. Today, I'm wearing orange. I am a Broncos fan, but that's not why I'm wearing orange today. I'm wearing orange, and uh, Emily's wearing orange on her dress, because this week is Infertility Awareness Week. Bad things happen to people that can't control it. It's out of their control. What will you do when your back is against the wall? Do you turn to God in faith? The Roman centurion did. In fact, what we read is that he had a problem that his servant was sick. It's a servant that he highly valued, and this servant was about to die. James 1, 2 and 4 tells us that the testing of our faith... Let me read that to you, actually. James 1, 2 and 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Bad things happen, but it is the testing of our faith. It produces endurance. It strengthens our faith. So let me give you an action step. Knowing that bad things happen, we need to prepare our heart for real faith. Prepare your heart to use real faith. Life is going to happen. We live in a fallen world. But we prepare our heart to use real faith. Okay, let me give you some details on ways that we can prepare our heart to, to exercise real faith. One of those is by taking steps of action. So in verses 3 through 5, what I want to point out to you is that real faith takes steps of action. It's not general optimism. General optimism doesn't take steps of action. General optimism says, eh, it's going to all work out for good. It'll be fine. That's not real faith. Real faith takes steps of action. Faith involves knowledge, assent, and confidence. Faith involves recognizing the need to take action. And how do we take action? That is, we turn to Christ. Going to Jesus is critical for real faith. Look at the text. In verse 3, the centurion heard of Jesus. He heard of Jesus. He heard something about Jesus. He knew something about Jesus. It wasn't just I hope things work out. No, he heard about this Jesus character. And so what did he do? 
he took action. He sent his, uh, for the elders to go and talk with him. So he heard, he knew something about Jesus, he acted, he sent. There is a parallel account of this story in Matthew 8. And in Matthew 8, it describes the centurion as having, almost it sounds as if the centurion talked with Jesus. I think the idea here is this centurion was so confident after hearing of Jesus that he sent the elders and said, go speak on my behalf. Here's what I want to happen. I want you to talk to this Jesus person. I want you to tell him what's going on. I want to take action, and Jesus can solve my problems. So what is the sort of action step for us here? Make specific requests. Go to Jesus. Make specific requests and look for specific answers. Jesus has the answers. He's waiting for us to make requests of him. Real faith involves steps of action, and those steps that we should take is going to Jesus with specific requests, waiting for specific answers. I'm guilty. This is, this is where I'm very guilty. My prayers often involve general requests from God. And guess what happens when God answers my general requests? I don't know if he did or not. If I ask God, can you help today to work out well? And today works out well? I don't know. I mean, what does that even look like, right? If I ask God today at the barbecue, can the weather work out so that the charcoal burns? Guess what? When the weather works out and the charcoal burns, I know what my answer was. Make specific requests and wait for specific answers so that you can see God working in powerful ways. Okay, third, verses six through eight. Real faith emphasizes Christ, not just an outcome. So we have to hold these two things in balance because I just told you to make specific requests. But remember that real faith emphasizes Christ, not just the outcome. Look at what happens in verses uh, 6 through 8 here. Jesus says, okay. And he starts heading to the centurion's house. And as he's heading to the centurion's house, the centurion has uh, a sort of an epiphany. I'm not worthy. He understands. He becomes aware just who he's just asked just how worthy Jesus is, just what Jesus' worth is. He emphasizes Jesus' worth. I want you to also note a contrast here. How did the elders of the Jews describe this centurion? Look in your text. Worthy. The elders of the Jews had said, this is a worthy man. How does the centurion describe himself? Unworthy. That's really important for us to recognize. No matter who you are, when it comes to Jesus, we're unworthy. Because Jesus is so worthy. Jesus is the key. He is the one who's worthy. And the centurion recognizes, I'm not even worthy of this. 
But then he goes further than that. It's not just that he's not worthy, but it's that Jesus's word is central. There's an emphasis on Jesus's word. To understand this, if we look at Roman culture and their view of the miraculous, the Romans did believe that miracles were possible, and the way they believed miracles occurred was by the actual touching of an individual that would cause a miracle to occur. They believed that without the physical contact between somebody who could do a miracle and the individual, there was no possibility for miracle. Miracles required physical contact. That was an absolute view that they held. It requires physical contact. So when this centurion makes this proclamation, all you need to do is say the word, this is profound. This is a recognition that Jesus is special, more so than anybody else, because all it takes is Jesus' word to make the change. The other thing that I notice in verses 6 through 8 is a de-emphasis of the actual need. If you look at verses 6 through 8, the centurion never mentions what he actually needs to happen, what he actually wants to happen. See, he's already mentioned it once, and now the emphasis is on Jesus' word and his word. And the, the need is not, not even brought up again. In fact, if you read through the rest of the passage, through all the way to verse 9 and 10, it's almost like the, the fulfillment of this need is kind of like a tag on at the end. Oh yeah, by the way, it worked out. This is what it means to emphasize Christ. We bring our petitions. We bring our petitions, but... We emphasize Christ. And I believe that if we are exercising real faith, we will come to Christ with our petitions, with our requests. And as we are bringing these things before Christ, we will become overwhelmed with the glory of who Christ is and the worth of who Christ is. And we will begin to exercise worship and the things of earth will become strangely dim because of the glory and grace of the one to whom we come. So we should be specific in our prayer, but we quickly move to the emphasis being placed on Christ, not just the outcome. Four, real faith yields real answers. But before we get to verse 10, I want you to see the answer that comes in verse 9. Jesus heard this. He was amazed at him. Jesus delights in real faith. And that is far more important than the physical answer. Jesus delighting in faith, if Jesus were to take delight in me, wow. That's powerful. That's amazing. Frankly, that's a real miracle for Jesus to have delight in me. Because I'm not worthy. Jesus takes delight in the centurion's faith. So much so that look at the contrast he makes. I have not found such great faith even among those who should have had it. Even among all those who should have recognized me, they've not had this level of faith. And then Jesus blesses the real faith. And in this case, he gives an answer of yes. 
Jesus blesses his real faith. Now, I want to be careful here because there are times when the answer may not be yes. It was in this story. But the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 entreats Jesus three times to have a thorn in the flesh removed. And what is the response that Jesus gives? My grace is sufficient for you. You don't need that. Don't worry. But my grace will be there. Sometimes the answer is not yes. Sometimes the answer is just wait. Sometimes the answer is no. My grace is sufficient. But if we've got these things in the right, right order, where we first take action, and then we are specific, and then we emphasize Christ, if Christ's answer is yes, we will delight in his answer. But if his answer is no, we will delight in his answer. Because remember, the emphasis is on Christ. The emphasis will be on Christ. So, action step. Act in real faith. Anticipate real answers. When we act in faith, Jesus gives us real answers. In my prayer letter, I mentioned uh, the Easter events that occurred and the number of places where Jesus just blew my mind. As things worked out little by little, step by step, I believe it is because we were praying and acting in faith. And so this series is on vision for the church. I want us to be a church that takes actions of faith, that recognizes specific answers to specific requests. That means that we need to pray specifically. By the way, that means we need to talk to each other so we can pray specifically. So that we're not just praying for health. Oh, I hope everybody's healthy today. No. Talk to each other so that you can pray for specific people's needs. So that we're not just praying, hopefully the budget's fulfilled this year. No. Pray for specific ministries and the steps that they're taking. Pray specifically and God will answer specifically. We will see how he says yes how he says no, how he says just wait on this one. I'm convinced that we're going to be asked for real faith as a church. I think God is going to ask us to step out in real faith. I think he is actually asking us. Let's do it together as we pray confidently knowing that if we put the emphasis on Christ, He's going to take care of those details. He already did that for the last week in profound ways. I'm sold out because I saw what Christ did. Let's practice real faith. You see, real faith leads to faithfulness. So I've got a picture here, and it's not complete yet. This is a four-part series, and think of this as a puzzle. You're going to see the whole picture come May 15th. But for today, what I want you to see and what I want you to focus on is that real faith leads to faithfulness. When we step out in faith and we see how God answers, we will become more and more faithful. We will attend services not because we feel obligated to, but because we can't help but go because we know that God's working. 
we will step out, we will read our Bibles, we will take the steps of faithfulness because we've got the faith and we've seen God work through our faith. So this week, my challenge is practice real faith. Make specific requests. But emphasize Christ as you do so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the faith of a Roman centurion. Not a Jew, but someone like us, a Gentile, who exercised real faith. Faith that was beyond what Jesus had seen. Faith that Jesus took delight in. We have seen you working in our church over the last week, but beyond that, over the last several years. We've seen you set little details in motion so that as a church, your hand has been on us. I pray that you would lead us to step out in faith. That as we look forward to Commitment Sunday on May 15th, when you are going to give us the opportunity to give toward the remodel, that we would do so in faith, knowing that you're in control and that we build your church and that you are the one who does the work. So I pray that we would turn our hearts to you. Let the things of earth grow strangely dim as we watch you in careful detail work out every single part. In Jesus' name.